Hello, and welcome to episode nine of the Venture Games podcast. I'm Chris Quidu, and today I'm thrilled to introduce my next guest, Jamil Moladina, game industry veteran and CEO of Hexagram. How's it going, Jamil? Pretty well. How about yourself, Chris? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you very much for joining me. So pleasure. To kick things off, I would love to just dive into your, uh, your professional background, and I know you've done a lot. Yeah, I've, I've done a few things. <laughs> uh, at first, I was not exactly sure what I wanted to do with my career. You know, uh, you kind of do a few things in college, and you may have some impulses. Like from a young age, I was always interested in entertainment, whether it's uh, science fiction, escapism in the form of books or film or television or games, all of that was just something that really resonated with me. And I suppose if we're doing the the therapy session, there could be a number of reasons why I'd want to escape from the real world. Sure. Uh, but uh, to abridge that part of the conversation, I had I had this latent interest, but yet I think I wanted to do something that was much more uh, reliable in terms of what can pay the bills. And so mm -hmm. I ended up on a track that put me in law school and eventually had me working at a law firm in San Francisco until I realized that the partners at my firm were not having as much fun with their lives as the, as the clients of the firm. The mm -hmm. clients were all in tech and in games and were really, really excited about what they were doing. And you could see it, you could feel it. And I realized, you know what, I got to get onto that track. And uh, I, I went through a number of permutations before landing on this ad in Craigslist for Game Developer Magazine. Mm -hmm. So for an editor, which is the one thing other than the law that you have on your resume that uh, can potentially cross over. Because mm -hmm. if, you're, if you do journal in law school, you, you actually end up editing a publication. So that was the one other thing. And <laughs> They were incredibly receptive and warm, a really great group of people. And they took me in and they taught me the magazine business. And as luck would have it, everyone in front of me resigned or, you know, something happened and yeah. I just took over their role. Uh, eventually where I was editor in chief and publisher of the magazine. And I loved that. I, mm -hmm. You know, writing for a living is one of the greatest highs you can have if you have any kind of creative spark in you. So being paid to write was insane. But even more than that, it was an opportunity to get close to the game industry, something that I always had a very strong connection and drive to uh, be part of. And part of that was, was loving games, but also trying to understand who were the key players in those games, who were the designers. There was, and still is, a very strong interest in knowing who the creators of films and television shows and books are. Mm -hmm. But uh, at that time, it was that kind of identity of the creators was very, quite buried and very rarely and intermittently rose to public consciousness who were the designers of great games. Mm -hmm. But I made it a point to figure that out. And, and uh, that not kind of the basic knowledge I had came in very handy on game developer and uh, uh, it gave us an opportunity to do a lot of really great uh, uh, interview reporting which was uh, just a, just pure joy to do um, and keeping that trend of people resigning in front of me uh, <laughs> the head of the GDC Alan Yu resigned to go uh, start in an incredibly successful career as a game entrepreneur with mm -hmm. uh, Neil Young. Uh, but in the meantime, he left uh, the GDC and the media company that uh, ran both figured, well, this guy's doing an okay job with the magazine. <laughs> let's, let's have him r run the conference. And uh, as it happened, I really enjoyed that role as well. It wasn't writing for a living. It was running an event, which was hugely stressful, actually, mm -hmm. uh, because as a live product, you know, anything can go wrong with it. And uh, the opportunity for editorial contribution is less in that, in that capacity. But on the other hand, uh, it gave me greater insight and greater access to the game industry and uh, kind of platformed me and, and my nascent uh, network in the industry uh, in a relatively objective and neutral way uh, so that I wasn't, 
I wasn't asking for anything. I was largely seeking information to present an agenda for the game industry. And that in and of itself, uh, coupled with the uh, uh, journalism and kind of the evidentiary approach uh, of my training, was very helpful in parsing fact from fiction and understanding the industry at large. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm forever grateful to that opportunity and the advisors that we had on GDC, just incredible people. Um, I hesitate to start naming names, but uh, uh, Dave Perry, Mark Cerny, Luke Castle, just a lot of really incredible and uh, giving and accomplished uh, folks. And on the magazine, people like Noah Falstein, uh, just, just an incredible opportunity for someone early in his career to, uh, to gain this extraordinary access to this mentor class. But after a bit of GDC, it became a little bit rote. And like I said, the events business wasn't actually my thing, if mm -hmm. I can say that on your show. Sure. Um, uh, and what happened uh, was that um, the CEO of uh, EA, John Riccatello, was uh, also the chairman of the ESA. And, you know, this maybe this is starting to be a bit of a trend, but the person who ran the E3 resigned and uh, <laughs> they were looking for someone to kind of uh, talk about that role. And J uh, John asked me if I would be interested. And I kind of had to um, say like, well, you know, I don't actually like events. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute! You, you do a great job with events. So like, no, I I really like the GDC itself. It's not yeah. that I'm, you know, I, I love making events. Mm -hmm. And uh, I asked the fateful question: Well, what else have you got? And he said, Well, I would love our portfolio at EA uh, of third-party published titles to look like your schedule at GDC of the best developers mm -hmm. in the world. I said, Well, that sounds really interesting. Let's have that conversation. And he kindly opened the door. Uh, to talk to the folks that ran EA Partners, uh, Dave Demartini and Sinjin Bain and John Horsley and uh, a lot of really great people who, you know, I guess when the CEO says, hey, meet this guy, it's yeah. like, well, I guess we better talk to this guy. And they were very gracious in, in letting me have a conversation and again, gracious in giving me the chance to lateral over into hardcore business development. Mm -hmm which I'd done in a very light way running GDC because I was the GM of that show. I managed the P&L and uh, the content and the, the business side of it. But truth be told, is that, uh, publishing games was new. So they, uh, I learned a lot. It was, it was a, you know, my, my time at EA was, was like an MBA uh, on the job. And I had a fantastic time learning and understanding that business, meeting a lot of, again, very creative and capable producers like Mike Dornan, and uh, Mike Doran, I mean, um, and uh, uh, John Solera, a lot of folks that would end up being incredibly uh, influential and capable producers mm -hmm. uh, in their own right. Uh, and, and one of the things that kind of jumped out was the, was the rise of digital games. There was this opportunity to adapt our business model of packaged goods yeah. and support the publishing of third-party independent developers. Mm -hmm. And uh, the planets were in alignment and the time was right, but no third-party game publisher had done it yet. Right. So uh, luckily a couple of us were huge fans of those kinds of games. Like me and Mike were just playing them all the time. And uh, you know, we, where else is the next generation of AAA developers going to come from if not the indie community? Mm -hmm. So uh, we, we presented this in, uh, in what we thought would be a persuasive way. And again, we had the good graces to have amazing people like uh, Frank Jabot uh, making decisions uh, at, and Brian Nider making decisions at the top of the games label. And they let us, they gave us the green light. And, you know, we published games. Our first game was Clay Entertainment's Shank, which was a running, gunning, uh, chainsawing side scroller with a Tarantino <laughs> vibe. 
And uh, I still have the log line. Uh, it's etched into my lizard brain because uh, <laughs> I, I was I was so captivated by that game. It was brilliant. And Clay, you know, um, uh, uh, Jamie and Jeff were just incredible creators, mm -hmm. and their energy was 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 over the top, and very much. I mean, the Tarantino bit is no exaggeration. They uh, they had a vision and they executed it. The first R-rated. Um, Fifteen dollar uh, PSN XBLA game, uh, and of course that was a match for EA sensibilities. So that was right. just so much fun to do. We ended up publishing five more games, and uh, it was it was really a fantastic opportunity to learn the uh, decision making process of how a publisher selects games to fund. Um, around about that time, the uh, mobile industry was really taking off, and uh, I was. Uh, given the chance uh, to have a fateful breakfast with uh, one of the founders of Funzio, uh, Michael Chang, who is head of corporate development or a leader in corporate development at EA, he couldn't make this breakfast and he asked me to take it for him. Mm -hmm. And so they thought they were talking to a corp dev guy. And I just said, wait, wait a minute, I'm, I'm actually just subbing for somebody else. But the conversation went in really interesting directions. And one thing led to another and I, I, I became a VP at Funzio. Um, uh, and, and it was an opportunity, again, to kind of extend, uh, learn on the job and learn a few things. Uh, so besides a, a BD kind of uh, things, I was also involved with uh, adapting our iOS titles over to Android, working out what would make sense in terms of Amazon, uh, Google Plus, mm -hmm. and uh, just a really phenomenal experience again. And as luck would have it, we managed to get three games in top grossing and voila, we, we were a strategic acquisition for Gree, which uh, gave me the resources to uh, start my own game company. So uh, finally the dream, there it is, you know? <laughs> uh, uh, and, and while, you know, I think in Silicon Valley, you, you do get this, you do get this, not pressure, but it is kind of uh, the sh the social fabric is influenced by uh, by by status, like I guess any 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 society. Uh, but being the CEO of a startup and is is particularly tuned to that culture. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, it was all pretty much a means to an end to create the kinds of games that uh, I would love to play, you know, <laughs> to be the change you want to see in the world. Right, if I can right. completely mangle and uh, <laughs> horrify uh, uh, Gandhi's descendants. But um, uh, the, uh, the, the chance was there to make uh, an arcade style game with a free to play economy and, and set in a post-apocalyptic uh, uh, world. And we made Tank Nation. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was always a fan of Nintendo games. I was always a fan of artillery. And um, uh, me and my co-founder, James Kelm, we just had uh, this wonderful moment in time to uh, take a chance on something original. Uh, you know, those moments occur pretty rarely mm -hmm. in life. And so we took, we took our shot and uh, we, we managed to create the game, <laughs> uh, much a surprise, I think, of, of many. But uh, uh, we got featured by Apple. We uh, had uh, over four-star rating. Fans loved the game. But, you know, as, as James, I think he takes a very gracious way of looking at it. He said we were early. We were ahead of our time. And um, uh, in that moment, uh, the game wasn't quite matching what the market was looking for. And uh, I had to wind down the company, which was really difficult. Uh, uh, one of my good friends in the business, uh, Sean Faust, likes to say that that was the moment in which I was my most authentic, mm. uh, in which uh, I was managing that company and, and dealing with uh, winding it down. And um, I think it was uh, it was difficult, but I had to focus on getting my people their jobs, getting new jobs and, and uh, getting some return on the dollar to my investors. And so that was kind of my focus. And in taking my list of engineers and artists and producers and designers around uh, the Bay Area, uh, when I went to Google, I met with uh, Bob Meese, who was the person that I had done our, uh, our Google Plus and uh, Android uh, deals with, uh, always thought, him, thought of him as a really great gentleman of the business, uh, a kind of a refreshing 
lack of sarcasm and uh, bro grammar uh, <laughs> kind of mentality mm -hmm. and just, just earnest and positive. And he said, well, this is a great list of engineers, but you know, we'd love to see your name on this list too. And uh, one thing led to another and he, he convinced me to come aboard as game strategy lead. Um, I can't go into too much detail about sure. uh, what that role entailed, but uh, it was an opportunity to give back to the community and mm -hmm. to identify strong titles and give them the support that they needed for a diverse and, and satisfying portfolio of games on, on Google Play. Uh, that role led to the uh, chance to serve as creative director on nascent platforms. And so that involved uh, um, uh, putting together games portfolios for, for Android TV, for uh, Daydream VR, and uh, some early work on a particular streaming platform. Mm -hmm. And I, I had a lot of fun with that. Uh, at the same time, it was, it was still, you know, we, we would hire people from the game industry and they, they would say, this is awesome, but I kind of wish I were the person on the other side of the table that was uh, making stuff for this platform. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I certainly had that itch. I, I think being on the platform side reminded me of what an extraordinary moment and opportunity it was to run one's own game company mm -hmm. and create uh, based on one's own vision. Um, and uh, uh, once you've been bitten by the entrepreneurial bug, I'm sure you see it in a lot of the folks that you talk to, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it it doesn't leave your system, <laughs> and you, you kind of gotta uh, you gotta um, accept it and right. roll with it. That's 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 what's that's it's, that's what's in you now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I took some time off. I uh, I was I was thinking about what are the things that really resonate for me. And uh, uh, the creative element is something that is extremely important to me. Um, I may not be uh, terrifically uh, experienced in that regard, uh, but what my career points to is games operations. And so I also kind of had to, you know, uh, uh, honestly uh, uh, evaluate that aspect. Mm -hmm. um, I had written a novel and I'd uh, uh, taken a film course uh, uh, in shot some short films with some friends and um, uh, there, there was a lot of experimentation and creativity uh, uh, before and after Wormhole Games. But the, uh, the opportunity that I realized that I was chasing is, was kind of a quest. It was how do we make all of these extraordinary forms of entertainment come together in some way? And you know, I, this, this has been a dream that people have had for uh, since games first came out and you saw uh, game film crossovers all the time and uh, both industries become excited about it every couple of years and you know things don't work out mm -hmm. uh, at, at full speed but there are some uh, pretty amazing standout uh, examples for example star some star wars games have been hugely successful uh, so uh, there's there's uh, there's there is an opportunity there and uh the the thing that I was noticing, and I was consulting at this point, I was consulting for a major media company, mm -hmm. a, 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 one of the streaming video platforms. Uh, and one of the things that was becoming clear was that there is a growing interest among media companies and video platforms to, to better provide engagement and interactivity to, to their fans and to their audiences. And as they were looking for that type of content, I began thinking that this would be a phenomenal way to kind of pull together uh, all of my interests, but also mm -hmm. all of the interests of anyone that has imagined uh, playing with the characters and living in the, in the worlds that they love. And, and the opportunity is interesting now, not only because of the, uh, the video platforms, but because of the technology that, that we accept in our lives. We accept, a, uh, we, we accept that technology uh, personalizes our experiences when we are uh, shopping. We accept that uh, technology takes a shot at trying to understand what we're interested in next through our, 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 our digital assistance. Uh, we have a lot of things that are part of our lives today, although 
they're not deeply integrated into games. So uh, the thesis or the quest that was coming together uh, was how do we create uh, an interactive narrative experience or game that is accessible to many people and yet has that level of personalization and persistence that gives you that, that immersion mm -hmm. uh, without necessarily having to put on a VR headset or something else. Um, it, it, was an, it was an interesting question. And then how do you apply the best practices of the mobile world? Uh, because they have a fast iteration cycle and uh, uh, they learn quickly from things that work and things that don't work. They are driven by uh, engagement and uh, retention uh, which are which uh, uh, large platforms with large audi audiences have to think about as well, and so I was uh, you know consulting in and out of this space and uh, bumped into an old friend of mine, uh, Rob Otten, who mm -hmm. had been um, you know pitching me on his company Hexagram. Uh, but I, I suppose he was a better friend to me than I was to him because I, I didn't quite understand what his company Hexagram did. I mean, the phrase immersive experience to me uh, leaves a little to be desired yeah. uh, or leaves much to be desired if I mangled that <laughs> phrase. I'm mangling phrases today. That's, what <laughs> That's okay. But what it became clear to me was that Hexagram was a company that was already making these kinds of immersive experiences, having uh, been founded a decade ago on the basis of a hit ARG. So if you know what an ARG is, you're, you're, uh, you're kind of halfway there in understanding. But the idea is to present a game experience that feels and breathes like a real world on the other side of your phone or your PC or, or uh, something that you might even encounter through the real world. Mm -hmm. And you go down that rabbit hole, you solve puzzles, you submit user-generated content, you uh, see that content reflected in, on Twitch or, or in a particular television show that then captures all of your feedback and puts it back into the narrative in an interesting way. And so Hexagram had been quietly, methodically uh, developing and designing these experiences based on their own technology, but... Uh, you know, it's not the technology that matters. It's it's the it's the it's the quality and the depth of the engagement and how how wondrous it feels that to be able to suspend disbelief, mm -hmm. overcome the uh, the barriers to entry that may be there with a gamepad or a keyboard, yeah. and just feel like you're directly in it. And they did they did one of these for Stranger Things, which which was nominated for an Emmy. Uh, which then really kind of uh, uh, crystallized the point to me that uh, uh, here was a company that was pretty much there already doing the thing that I was thinking about figuring out. And uh, uh, having been around the uh, startup world enough, uh, I know that it makes more sense to work with an existing team that knows how to do something and has iterated on it mm -hmm. rather than putting a team together piecemeal. And even with a nascent, even with something that is relatively new, uh, it helps to go with a team that uh, uh, knows what it's doing. So uh, we figured out a way to make it work. Uh, and uh, I joined the company as CEO. And uh, we've got a few things cooking. Uh, uh, we are pursuing this space. This is the, the vision of the company. And uh, we'll potentially have more to say about that soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that all sounds very exciting uh, as far as the future for Hexagram. You know, thank you for the very detailed background. You know, that's why I opened this thing. You <laughs> yes. have done, you've done a lot. You've been to a bunch of different places. And I just wanted to dive uh, deeper into a few things you touched on, right? So first, sure. just getting started and taking a step back what games actually inspired you early on to get involved in the gaming industry, right? Like what were these games that, you know, made you fall in love with the gaming industry? Absolutely. The first game I played or, or had access to was uh, fire, which was a game and watch game, mm -hmm. uh, which was a, <laughs> Early Nintendo handheld. Yeah, most Quite people my age probably know Game and Watch because of Super Smash. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm tipping my hand as to my <laughs> own uh, vintage, but uh, that game, I, I 
I played the hell out of that game. Yeah. I loved it. It was it was pretty rudimentary, but so satisfying. Mm -hmm. Twitch controls and just getting back and forth to bounce that that uh, um, that victim into the ambulance was just. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know why it was there's something very compelling about a simple core game loop and i i found that again uh my, my friend shaheen had a uh his parents got him an atari 2600 and uh i was over his house i i i there was there was one session that was three hours long in which we played space invaders mm -hmm. for three hours and it was just it was just incredible i loved that game um and when we moved to the United States, uh, I it was a priority for me to be able to afford uh, games and 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 consoles. Mm -hmm. So uh, I worked I worked uh, goofy jobs to be able to have income to to buy these games. So mm -hmm. I, I I worked as a questionnaire input entry level person at JD Power I I was a I was a barista at Gloria Jean's Coffee Bean I guess I mean I don't need to like uh, <laughs> give them all free advertising sure. but uh, uh, I I did a lot of uh, just minimum wage jobs in mm -hmm. order to be able to buy Ikari Warriors for the Nintendo Entertainment System and to buy a Space Harrier for the Sega Master System mm -hmm. and uh, you know these were a lot of money 29 bucks was a lot of money <laughs> absolutely uh, Yes, yes. And my, my cappuccinos were not, you know, aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> but weirdly, I think I think I think the customers, you know, I would make a joke out of it. And that would encourage the tip in yeah. the jar. And it's like the other the other folks like, how how are you how is Jamil getting these tips? Like, cause I'm I, I don't know, I'm I'm messing up and they're okay with it. <laughs> I really don't know how this is happening. But um uh yeah, I, I you know I I would I would kind of shake out that rubber mat and and get like detergent disinfectant mm -hmm. all over over me, but I, I could wash my hands and I could pick up quartet and play it and love it. Mm -hmm. uh, Contra was also hugely played. Uh, the Contra code uh, got me up to speed, and then finally I could finish it without doing the Contra code. <laughs> And uh, Super Metroid, though, was was it for me. Like Metroid was brilliant, but Super Metroid on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System was absolute genius. The mood, the music, the play of going back and forth and rediscovering parts of the world. I would love to see Nintendo do a, do a, a modern 4K remix uh, of, of that game. Yeah. Don't make it 3D. Uh, it needs to continue to be played as a 2D side scroller, mm -hmm. and um, that would be that would make my millennium. It would be <laughs> so awesome. So uh, hopefully they take that into account for the for the rumored uh, Switch Pro. And yes, I do need it to be 4K. I am one of the people. Um, okay, and then what gaming are you doing today? Well, funnily enough, it's it's not too dissimilar from that. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, 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 I still play Diablo three. The game came out like I think in 2012, but I yeah. love that game. I, I love these. I, I love being able to have this overhead perspective or this pulled back perspective. I love right. it in side scrollers. I love it in overhead ARPGs. Mm -hmm. And I've, you know, Diablo three doesn't have the longest campaign, but I've finished that game enough. And, you know, the seasonal system is great because, you know, if I already have the full necromancer, outfit, then I can go back to get some other familiar or some other item. And it's worth it because I want to play the whole game again. Mm -hmm. And it's worth it to go back in and, and get those items. One of the uh, one of the games that I assigned my team at Google to get to know a little better was uh, Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it does actually tie back to uh, some of those um, earlier names I mentioned, because by this time, Frank Jabot was uh, running the mobile group and uh, of EA yeah. and John Solera, who was formerly in EA Partners, was the uh, was the uh, lead on this project, and it was a squad based. It is a uh, a squad based uh, strategic combat game, and and it was it felt a lot like it, I'm realizing now, just in talking to you, that it was an early stop on my quest mm -hmm. to to live in the Star Wars world and play the way I played as a, as a four-year-old, yeah. meaning that 
in this game, you're collecting these characters very much like we collected action figures. Mm -hmm. And you're mashing them, you're putting them in fights, like uh, like semi-preposterous fights that <laughs> wouldn't make sense in the universe. But yeah. you could because you had the action figures and you could kind right. of you could do that and you could imagine the story that, that that's going on there and this game it seems like the team knew that they kind of leaned into that aspect that that action figure play element and and it was a really really a, a fun game and they, they figured out a lot of great mechanics to uh, bring in ships that kind of made it uh, uh, even more like the toys we had as kids mm -hmm. and uh, you know I started playing that game five years ago, and I'm still playing it every single day to this day. I I founded the game industry guild Nerf Herders. Uh, I today I I abdicated the leader the leader role to another officer, uh, Sean, who's absolutely brilliant and uh, a, a great great person. I just need to as as a startups as a startup CEO, I need to fully focus on, yeah, on you know, the company that I'm, I'm running. Yes, everything else was getting neglected anyway. So <laughs> I'm just I'm just truing up all of that, all of those commitments. Got it. Okay, so you you know you mentioned Diablo three a bunch. Were you one of the people <laughs> who was outraged uh, by this whole Diablo Gate scandal that happened a couple of years ago? Are you talking about the uh, BlizzCon yep. where? Uh, it, the fans thought it was the Diablo four announcement, but it was a mobile game announcement. That's the one. Okay. So what I don't get about that situation is yeah. obviously there's a Diablo 4 coming. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Everyone knew. And, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> chill out, guys. I mean, come on. And I, I'm absolutely one of those people that is rabidly excited for Diablo 4. I can't yeah. wait for that. Yeah. I mean, holy crap. My mouth is watering. And that's not <laughs> even the right response. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, that doesn't even make sense, but it is. But... I can't wait for that game. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I am not on my computer all the time. I'm not sure. at my console all the time. I do mm -hmm. have my phone all the time. Uh, I am very excited to see Diablo Immortal. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I am a mobile gamer as well. I'm I'm um, you know I, I I like to play games wherever they are. I'd like I like to I like what I like. And um, frankly, um, I was very encouraged by by what I heard. And uh, the guy making the announcement on stage, I realized that you know he had he had a um, um, he had a challenging fan response. But my yeah. response to him was, "Dude, where did you get that super awesome Diablo T-shirt?" <laughs> and so, so I figured out how to get that T-shirt, and I have that. T-shirt. So that's my response to that controversy. I got that T-shirt. <laughs> that's really funny. So I don't know if you like follow these gaming stocks at all, but you know this controversy was so big it actually like had a pretty significant negative impact on the stock, like following Diablo Gate. You know, so I used to work in investment management, you know, covering tech stocks and all that. And you know, there, there were people writing like sell side <laughs> reports, you know, coming out of like all the big banks about this whole Diablo Gate event. Um, so you know, just really funny to to hear another perspective. Yeah, and and because the fundamentals are strong, you know that kind of short-term thinking, it's it's going to singe the fingertips of people yeah. that don't fully appreciate what's actually happening. Oh yeah. So here is a very su successful game studio, mm -hmm. uh, and and publisher and and giant outlier uh, game company. It, it's like saying that um, you're not going to have. Uh, it, it's like suddenly losing faith in epic games or valve that right. just doesn't make sense yeah. you're in it for the long haul if you have a piece if you're lucky enough to have a piece of any of those uh extraordinary outlier developers mm -hmm. and if you can't stay the course then you know it's 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 on you if you yeah. if you get out if, if you if you buy high and sell low that's on <laughs> you dude it's funny too because a similar thing happened with uh, CD Projekt after they, um, you know, after Cyberpunk came out. Yeah, like yeah. the stock, you know, obviously everyone knows. I, I'm sure most people listening to this know by now. Uh, you know, the game was just riddled with bugs, like nearly unplayable for some people. Um, after being one of the most anticipated games probably in years. Um, so yeah, you know, a similar yeah. thing happened. Well, and again, similar um, non-controversial reaction from me, which was mm. this game is awesome. <laughs> I had I had one glitch, which is that uh, one of the characters early on, she had no legs when she was sitting <laughs> in the bar. 
And I thought that was just funny. I mean, I, my, my gameplay was not uh, interrupted or challenged. Yeah. I love CD Projekt Red. Mm -hmm. I, I, um, my wife, Shelby, actually played The Witcher a, a, a tremendous amount. That was, mm -hmm. that was definitely her game. Uh, but uh, I, I love their sensibilities. I love their approach. Um, I, I was perhaps lucky because I was playing it on a PlayStation 5, so I didn't mm -hmm. experience the same level of bugginess that some people had. And I do, yeah. I do, I do sympathize and appreciate the idea of spending an amount of money and not being able to fully play the thing that you have. Mm -hmm. But again, th these are the times we live in where if you just sit tight, the game <laughs> will update. I mean, come on, come on. But at the same time, Jamel, as a lifelong gamer, you know, gamers don't like to sit tight. Yeah, but it, you know, you can be patient. I mean, sure. I, I've been, I've been, uh, there, there were long stretches where I was waiting for a new Diablo or a new Metroid mm -hmm. and you just have to be patient. Yeah. No, I'm with or, you. or if, if you can't be patient, then learn Unreal and do it yourself. <laughs> exactly. Just build your own cyberpunk. It's not that hard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But build an indie game, seriously. Uh, yeah. Pick up Unreal or Unity and uh, figure it out. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, try it out. Uh, I, I think since I became a game developer, I am perhaps, I've, I've swung into the camp of being extremely sensitive uh, to the challenges of making a game mm -hmm. and uh, how hard it is. So in all honesty, it's going to be very difficult for you to uh, pull out a criticism of a game from me. Sure. Mm -hmm. or a film or any creative work of art yeah because uh uh i have tried all of them and they are all very hard mm -hmm. to get right so uh, uh my sympathies are kind of in the wrong area if, <laughs> no, if no, you no, want I, a, no, a no, provocative that's, that's response okay. <laughs> it doesn't have to be provocative at all um, okay, so you mentioned, you know, GDC earlier uh, in E3 as well. And, you know, I grew up uh, much more following and, and watching E3. And, you know, last year I was pretty disappointed that it, it didn't happen, you know, because of COVID. Um, and I, I would argue, you know, and maybe this is just my, my perception being off, right? But it seems like these game uh, conferences have somewhat lost some amount of mindshare. You know, you saw Sony playing out in the past. Um, and I... I I at least, you know, it feels to me like they may have lost a bit of their magic. What do you think about that? And what do you see as like the future of these conferences? Do you expect them to continue to be these like huge uh, cultural events for, for gamers? Yeah, I, I, think, I think you nailed it in the very last phrase. Mm -hmm. uh, will they continue to be cultural, huge cultural events for gamers? And I think that is what they should lean into. Mm -hmm. um, before I was in the game industry, I would concoct ways to break into E3. <laughs> and uh, I did, uh, and uh, it, was, it was wondrous. <laughs> and I think, I think times change. There may, there may be less need for publishers to have a physical event to mm -hmm. showcase their games for the holiday buying season, which is what E3 was created for. But once E3 was live and running, it also became a huge cultural event for gamers. Mm -hmm. And they were not allowed in. And, this, that was, <laughs> and it was just kind of weird. But E3 had been experimenting with having uh, more participation from consumers. And the fact of the matter is that there is a strong blurring of the lines between consumer and developer in the in the uh, creator economy. Mm -hmm. So you have YouTubers, Twitchers, you have people that are uh, creating game games themselves in Roblox. You have people that are uh, more and more stepping into this middle ground where they are part consumer, part developer, and many of them are, are directly making money from their experience. Mm -hmm. So whether they're streaming games or creating games that are themselves sold or played by others, uh, it's it's really an interesting and fascinating time. So I think what the opportunity is uh, when we when we're all vaccinated and we can safely return to some semblance of a new normal. Mm -hmm. I think what E three should do is lean into that, lean into the creator economy, yeah, and, and have more and more opportunities to meet your favorite YouTubers, to and of course meet your favorite developers, but restructure it 
in in the way that um, you know take some take some notes from Disney with their uh, D twenty event or mm-hmm. any any well run fan event I think would be worth uh, taking a few notes from. Mm-hmm. So shifting gears, you know the evolution of storytelling and intellectual property in gaming. It's something that you and I have talked about a bunch. It's something that we're both very passionate about. So as I think of gaming and other forms of IP uh, just continuing to blend, you know, the traditional media companies, it seems like haven't necessarily leaned into this as much as one might think, you know, makes sense given the growth of the gaming industry. And so do you think there's a world where some of these traditional media companies actually just say, hey, it's it's time to really make a bet on gaming. You know, let me go out and buy XYZ large gaming company. Yes, I think that is very much the case. Interactivity is and has always been really an extremely captivating and engaging form of entertainment. Mm-hmm. And all of these media companies have kind of diminishing returns from pursuing their existing businesses. Uh, Like games, they are all in hit-driven businesses. Right. Have uh, major film franchises, major TV franchises, major book franchises, and they all have common challenges of of this uh, uh, content arms race where they need to spend more on the next version in order to get an incremental amount of new... uh, uh, audience for their product Mm -hmm. and interactivity gives uh, you a way to directly reach that community to have a direct relationship with that consumer uh, which media companies typically don't have they need to invest millions of dollars in marketing campaigns to reactivate people who already claim to be fans of Mm -hmm. your product on facebook or wherever so there's some short-term connect the dots, obvious things there. But uh, media companies have been singed by, uh, by acquisitions in the past where things yeah. didn't work out. And so there's, there's this kind of healthy skepticism about how to kind of fit it all together. So my recommendation or my thought of how this might actually work is seeing more try before you buy, where you see more iteration or experimentation mm-hmm. with, with seeing how to make these kinds of uh, crossovers work that then culminate in, well, we'd better just acquire these guys because it's yeah. already working so well. Right. So uh, to me, that is the more likely outcome is we get toward that future. And at the same time, from the games industry side, it is it is becoming an ever-increasing arms race in terms of the hit-driven business on the game side. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, think, I think there'll be more and more interest in kind of connecting these dots. Also, you see platforms acquiring all the remaining independent studios. Yeah. So much so that I, it's it's becoming harder and harder to identify who is actually left. Yeah. Uh, um, you you saw uh, you saw the acquisition of Pipeworks, for example, which is a phenomenal studio, mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, uh, other other studios of of that size and caliber getting scooped up. So I think uh, content is king. Yeah. All the platforms are in competition. The opportunity is there. And yes, I imagine that there will be some consolidation, both at mm-hmm. this Pipeworks level, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised to see some giant media company buy some giant game company yeah. and, and put themselves into contention in terms of the mega platform competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in, in, in some ways, there are giant media companies that have almost no toehold in the games business. And you have giant game companies that have almost no toehold in the, uh, in the linear media business. Yeah. Yet both of these are thriving in the pandemic mm-hmm. with massive subscribers. You have something like Fortnite, which is absolutely killing it. Um, and, and you have uh, uh, other extraordinary um, social game experiences like Roblox and like Among Us. And, uh, and on, the, on the linear side, you have Netflix and Disney Plus is in the right place at the right time for that yeah. company. And there's, uh, there's a phenomenal uh, kind of rise in both of these. And yet there's this potential for uh, products to live in between or connect up uh, between them. So I think that will be more and more appealing, especially because uh, uh, interactivity allows you to re-engage your prior catalog. Mm-hmm. So the costs that Netflix and Disney Plus have to incur uh, are mitigated by uh, in- interactive experiences that allow you to 
rewatch seasons one through four. Yeah. No, I definitely completely agree, especially on, even though it's somewhat of a hot take still, I think for some reason, but I, I actually agree with you even on the larger side, right? Like I think mm-hmm. the writing's kind of on the wall. Part of the difficulty though is, you know, you have to pay for being late, right? So as these mm-hmm. huge game companies just continue to get more and more successful and their, you know, their enterprise values start to get higher and higher, you know, you're, you're paying a penalty uh, for waiting as well. Or you're paying a premium for your uh, for testing your product before signing on the dotted line. Sure. So I think there's a logic to that that side of things as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the companies that uh, are um, uh, uh, more disruptive and more uh, entrepreneurial are going to prove their case mm-hmm. and uh, potentially be acquired by the uh, uh, by the larger company that um, that is has shareholders that have that sensibility of, of making sure that, uh, of measuring twice and cutting once. Mm-hmm. And then just, you know, following up on your comment on the like streaming arms race, right? This is another yes. development that I, I don't know how much further it can go, right? Like at some point, you know, theoretically you can't pay unlimited money for content, right? Like at some point and, and yeah. still get a return, you know, at some point you have to, uh, have to prove that you can get the money back. And so how do you see it playing out? And, you know, I know it's, you don't have a magic eight ball or anything, but I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. Are you talking about the costs of Netflix shows going up or what do you mean? The the costs of Netflix and other streaming services continuing to spend more and more uh, on their content. Yes. I think, I think there's a couple of things in play here. And on the one hand, I hesitate to armchair quarterback Netflix. Sure. a gigantic successful company uh, who I've been a customer of since they were shipping DVDs out. <laughs> so uh, uh, I, I, I had, I still have the acrylic um, uh, rental uh, frame that they gave out to uh, early customers. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Netflix. And one of the things that I've seen them branching into is different genres. If um, a cyberpunk show costs so much that it breaks the bank, then you can diversify things with kind of a, a rom-com for a boomer audience. Sure. You know, you can, you can find where those niches are yeah. and support them with talent, but just without a budget that breaks the bank. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, not to over press a particular button, mm-hmm. but interactivity is also a way that Netflix has been experimenting with. And uh, the other streaming services are also uh, very curious about. There are a lot of really interesting engagement models that you see on Twitch as well. Right. Like uh, you have um, a performance theater in which the audiences uh, participate in the outcome of, of the show. Mm-hmm. And, and those things are quite interesting. You have, uh, again, the, the creator economy playing a role. I wonder if you will see some sort of uh, hybrid in the future where you see participation by the audience become more and more important to the community that Netflix is poised and, and its kind are poised yeah. to become. So uh, I, I think, I think, uh, I think you'll see that that uh, iteration among agile startups and companies that were recently startups as as they seek ways to engage that community. Because I think the blending of IP that you were referring to mm-hmm. before is is another rich opportunity for play. You see, and the reason I'm encouraged by this, a lot of what I'm saying are things that are born out from existing play mechanics in the real world. Yeah. So like escape rooms in the real world are exciting escape rooms in digital can be can mm-hmm. work like playing with action figures in the real world works uh, adapting that over to games is 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 like paper play testing you right. know there's some things that we already know work one of those things that we already know work is fan fiction mm-hmm. fans love to create with the stories that they love and you see a little bit of that with uh you know all the all the speculation and and film theories and game theories that are on YouTube, but uh, and Star Wars theories. There's there's so much there's so much that that fans want to give back and remix the content that they have. That mm-hmm. I see that also as an opportunity for these media companies to to do so in a uh, approved way. All right, you want to play with this stuff? Here are some assets to play with, and let's have some fun. 
Yeah, actually, that's a really interesting point you you bring up. I don't remember the exact stats, so I'm not going to try to recite it. But, you know, for every like hour of, you know, whatever big uh, piece of intellectual property, you know, there's often, you know, multiple times more uh, as far as fan made content, you know, and it's, yes. a lot of it is very rich. A lot of it people are spending lots and lots of time coming up with, you know, and there's just extremely complex and incredible worlds being built uh, or extensions of these worlds being built. Yes. And the two problems with that is that you, you cannot accurately uh, measure the reach of your franchise if mm -hmm. you don't take that into account. And the other thing that you miss is having that, that golden cohort for your next product. Reach that community directly. Engage them directly. They are willing and able and thrilled to play with your toys. Yeah. All right, Jamil, I could definitely talk to you about this stuff forever, but you know, to avoid <laughs> making this a super, super long podcast, I just want to ask one uh, sort of concluding question, right? So you've obviously done a lot. We've talked about all that, but you know, this is a, a new, uh, new inning and a new chapter for you. And so what do you want to accomplish in the future? It can be about Hexagram or just you know, your career in general. Um, and how do you want to see games and media entertainment evolve going forward? Well, that's a great question. I would say the thing that I wanna help make possible is the ability for fans to step into the worlds that they love. If, if there is a way to live in the Star Wars world, I would love, I would love to do so. Um, uh, I saw the film when I was four in the theater and I was captivated. I was, you know, I guess I was, I will give I will give you a little bit of that uh, therapy uh, answer, <laughs> which is that um, as as a minority growing up, uh, as a skinny odd looking kid, being able to escape into the Star Wars world was uh, a wonderful moment. It was full of aliens. It didn't matter what you looked like or or what accent you had. It was just an extraordinary world, and you could only enter it every three years. When I was you know, at that point. And um, when I saw the, uh, in, in the TV times, this picture of the Millennium Falcon mm -hmm. that wasn't in Star Wars, what's going on, mom? And uh, she said, well, there's another Star Wars movie. <laughs> ah! We have to go, we have to go see it. And she took me to Leicester Square, the, the, the um, I think it was the Cineplex Odeon. And we saw it and it blew my mind. And I couldn't go back for another three years. And I had my action figures and I could kind of make it up on my own. But if there is a, I mean, and I don't have to be a Jedi. I don't have to be a rebel. Um, maybe I am just, and maybe, maybe I take myself out of it. Maybe what we enable is the chance to just sit back and relax in the Moss Eisley Cantina and mm -hmm. have a drink. Or if we want to up the stakes very slightly, uh, we can see if the barkeep will allow us to play our band in that cantina. And, you know, keeping the, the stakes low, maybe we work our way up to, to Jabba's palace and uh, we get to perform there. You know, we're not blasting anyone. We're not, you know, lopping off anyone's limbs. All we're doing is, uh, you know, doing the gig. Mm -hmm. And I would love to enable that. I would love to do that. I'd love to have that a possibility in addition to watching all my favorite shows at the end of the day, when I turn on Netflix or Disney Plus or whatever it is that I'm watching, or you know, uh, Apple TV Plus, you know, given the interactivity of their device, uh, I would love to just drop into that world. I would love to just escape into it. And even if there are low stakes, even if it's just, you know, uh, pu pulling up personal data and having something personalized to me, you know, I I, I just want to let go. So you uh, impersonating yourself as a young child was great. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I won't try to follow that up. I think that's a fantastic answer. So thanks for taking the time, Jamel. This was really fun. My pleasure, Chris. Look forward to chatting with you again.